everybody. Welcome to church. How are you guys today? Nice to see you. Uh, my name is Darren, and uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff. Excited to be able to open God's Word together as we continue our worship. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 3, which is the text we just read, and we're going to dive in. Now, I want to say this, too. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're family around here, I, it's wonderful seeing more and more people back together, and it feels like things are starting to get more normal. Uh, if you're a guest, we're really excited that you're here, and it doesn't matter whether you've come at the invitation of a friend or whether you come from the neighborhood or whatever. We, we certainly don't want you to feel like a guest for very long. We, we like that you're a guest, but we want you to feel like family as well. And if there's anything I personally can do to assist in that process, please let me know. I'm happy to help however I can. And if you're watching with us online, we're excited that you're with us. We know that in the world we live, there are still some people who, for one reason or another, are not comfortable getting out. You might not be able to get out. You might be on the other side of the world. There are all kinds of reasons why you might be joining us uh, virtually. But we're excited that you're with us as well. And we, uh, we trust that God will speak to you and that he'll move all of us as we study his word together. So, as we open up here, uh, we're finishing out Genesis chapter 3 this morning, and it's a short text. We're just in a couple of verses, and, and I want to say, you know, for some of you, you might have thought, well, why, why don't we just tag this into the teaching last week? In Genesis 3, we've seen the fall of man, and what do we mean by the fall of man is the idea that, that God gave man and woman instruction. He gave them the opportunity to glorify him by being obedient. Now, as we know, they didn't take that opportunity to glorify God and instead went the other direction. They ate the fruit that God had forbidden. And their eyes were opened and they were immediately ashamed. There was a brokenness in their relationship with one another and a brokenness in their relationship with God. And in the text we studied last week, we saw them hiding. We see God pursuing them. I thought Scott did a great job of emphasizing for us the continued care and affection of God. But God asks them the question, he says, what have you done? And they have an opportunity to own it, right? To confess it. And at first they don't do that. They do the same thing we do. They blame, they shame, they point other directions. Eventually they do come around to saying, yeah, we did the thing that you told us not to do. And as a result, in the text we studied last week, God administers a punishment. So at the beginning of Genesis 3, we see both the failure of man and then the confession, right? And then the consequence, God doles out this consequence. So you might go, well, that's sort of the end of the story then. It's important this morning. Here's why we divided it the way we did. It's important for you to see that there's something that comes after the consequence. Yes, there is a curse for the serpent. And yes, there is a curse for, uh, for the woman and for the man. But that isn't where this chapter ends. And it doesn't end there on purpose. There's some key things we need to understand. And none of us like discipline, right? None of us like to be corrected. We never like to be caught when we're doing something wrong. That's uncomfortable for us from the time we're little. I remember... Uh, I remember, I've told some of you this story, but I was with my family in a Target when my son Jack was really little. He's like 20-something now, but we were in Target, and he said, I want to look at the toys, and I was like, okay, we can look at the toys. We're not buying anything. That, if you're a parent, you know, that's just like nonsense. I'm just talking nonsense when I said it, but I'm like, we're going to look at the toys. We're not going to buy anything. We go to the toy section. We start looking through, and as we're looking, he, he goes, uh, and he's just like two or three at the time. He goes, I want that truck. And I was like, good, that's great. It's great to know what you want. You can write that on your Christmas list in a couple of months. It's good to identify what you're into. And he's like, I want the truck. And I was like, hey, we talked about this already. We're not buying anything today. We're just looking at the toys. So just simmer down, right? Like bring the tone down a little bit. We're not, and he goes, I want the truck. And I was like, look, dude, we're not doing this. Like if you don't get yourself under control, 
then I'm going to take you out of here and you and me will sit in the car while mom finishes all the shopping, which she would have probably loved anyway, right? But uh, I'm like, if you can't be nice, I'm going to take you out. And he goes, I want the truck. I want the truck. He starts to yell. So I'm a man of my word. I got to discipline my kid. I pick up my kid and I start to carry him out of the target. Now, of course, the toy section's at the very back of the target, right? So I got to walk all the way out. In fact, have you ever been in target when you hear that one family that doesn't seem like they can control their kid? That's my family. We were there at the same time. It's so funny that we were at the target. That's us. Always us. Uh, So I'm carrying my boy out and he's going, I want the truck. I want the truck. And then about halfway, right? About halfway out of the target, like right around where the towels and the kids clothes are, he changes what he's yelling. He's yelling, I want the truck. And then he starts to go, don't lock me in the car again. I don't want to go in the car. It's hot in the car. People die in cars. Uh, please don't leave me alone. Now listen, I've never locked that kid in the car before, right? He pivots and he starts to like accuse me. of I'm like carrying my kid and looking at other parents and security guards and being like, I never put him in the car, right? But why does he do that? Well, because it's uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. It's shameful to be corrected. It, 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 we want to try and get some power back. Here at the end of Genesis chapter three, we know that Adam and Eve are in the midst of shame and brokenness. The social consequences of their own failure and the failure of their spouse or their, their community. And in the result of all of that, they end up in a, in a place I think many of us feel where we end up feeling fearful and confused and discouraged and angry in the midst of the things that we face when we're dealing with our own brokenness and the brokenness of others. It can be really easy to start to get discouraged, to be embarrassed, to be frustrated, to have questions, to be angry, Right? We see, though, that God does not disengage. Some of you this morning may be asking the question, where is God when I'm hurting? Well, what this text shows us and what we'll see in the moments ahead is that as Adam and Eve move forward, they are aware of at least, not only three, but at least three things that are helpful to us as well. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the brokenness in our relationships, there are three principles that we see here at the end of Genesis 3 that are incredibly helpful to us. Number one, Adam and Eve have the ability to see the promise of God. The promise of God and to put their hope in that. They have the opportunity to see the provision of God and to put their hope in that. And they also have the ability to see the plan of God even in the midst of their pain. Three main things I want you to see this morning. The promise of God the provision of God, and the plan of God, even in the midst of our pain. So let's look at this together. In verse 20, it says this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now this is interesting because in Genesis 2, the woman already has a name. It's woman. She's, she's named woman, out of man. So what we see here in Genesis 3 is actually a renaming. Now I don't know about you, but if I was Adam and I'd gone through the things he'd gone through, I probably would have picked a meaner name. You know what I'm saying? I probably would have picked a name like Tricky Jerk or Fruity McFruiterson or something like that. Just to point out, like, you gave me some fruit, whatever. He had the opportunity to, to, to name her. And what he names her speaks volumes to us. I don't want you to miss it. What he names her is Eve, which in the Hebrew means life or living. And in fact, verse 20 tells us, the man called his name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He could have chosen any name, but he hears the promise of God in the punishment. I don't know if you noticed it last week when Scott was teaching, but if we back up to Genesis chapter 3 verses 15 and 16, both in the the curse for the serpent and in the curse for the woman, we see a foretelling of what is to come. It says this in uh, in 15, Genesis 3:15, speaking to the snake, God says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In both of those sections, God points out in no uncertain terms that there will be life yet to come. He'd said in Genesis chapter 2 that he wanted them to be fruitful and multiply. So they knew that childbearing was going to be a part of the future. But after sinning, after breaking God's law, where they knew the consequence was death, I think in their heart they were feeling a sense of like, okay, now the story's all over. And even in the midst of the curse of God, he points to the fact that life will go on, that there will be offspring, that there will be childbearing, that life will continue. And I would say, in an even deeper level, Adam isn't, in the naming of his wife, he's not just celebrating the continuation of natural life, but I think he is understanding something at a deeper level, that there is a flashing sign here to spiritual life. To spiritual life. If you look at 3.15, it talks about this. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There, there is, for what it's worth, uh, the, the woman alone doesn't have an offspring, right? I'm not going to go into details with you this morning, but the woman alone doesn't have an offspring. So when it says there will be enmity between the serpent and the offspring of the woman, it's either pointing to something peculiar or it's pointing to the one time in human history where a woman had an offspring by herself. And that is... When a woman conceived, a virgin conceived and gave birth to the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 it points to this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 says. But when the the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. I think that Eve and Adam understood that a redeemer was coming. That there was a redeemer that would be born that was the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, who would crush the head of the tempter. Who would crush the head of the tempter. I think that when God pronounces this judgment, they don't just hear the consequences for themselves, but they hear the promise of God and the hope not only for the continuation of natural life, but for the redemption and beginning of spiritual life. In fact, having studied the text... I feel fairly convinced that Adam names Eve living as a signpost to say that she is the first of all creation who believes in the future redeemer, right? We understand that for Adam, or excuse me, for Abraham, he was saved based on his confidence in a future redeemer and it was credited to him as righteousness. I think Eve is the first of mankind who trust the promise of God that a redeemer will come, that victory will be had, that the tempter will not be victorious. So what we see first is that even in the midst of the pain and even in the midst of the sorrow and even in the midst of the grief, there is hope in the naming of his wife when he calls her living, there is hope in the promise of God, both for the continuation of natural life and the beginning of resurrection life, right? Not only that, I said at the beginning, we see in this a confidence or a trust in God's promise. We also see a confidence or trust in God's provision. Look at verse 21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Remember, if you, uh, if you can, the fact that after they sinned, the woman and the man do their best to cover up. Maybe you remember back from around Thanksgiving, Jeff Lilly taught a message where he brought a fig leaf up on stage and he kind of held it in front of himself and he said, this is us at our best. Like we're just trying to cover it up, right? 
but it's insufficient. All of our efforts to cover up our shame, to hide our embarrassment, to set aside our brokenness, they all fail. And God recognizes that, not only that a fig leaf will be insufficient to protect them, but that it does nothing for the ongoing shame they feel, and so he provides for them a more suitable covering. He provides for them clothing made out of skin. Now, the text doesn't tell us explicitly whether he procured those skins by the power of his own word and his voice. He he could, certainly capable of just pulling those out of the air. But the likelihood that the way in which he got those garments of skin is that he sacrificed an animal. So we see death come into the garden for the first time. We see the shedding of blood in order to provide a covering for man and his wife that they themselves could not accomplish on their own. You see any foreshadowing in that? I certainly do. I see in the covering of God his continued care. This is important. Don't miss it. Even after they fail, even after they disobey, even after they're they're broken and they hide and they lie about it and they shame one another, right? Even after all of that, God didn't go anywhere. He's still there. He's still looking at their needs. He's still caring for their physical and their spiritual needs. He's still engaged. He's providing for them things they could not have provided on their own. But he's also pointing ahead to the future shedding of blood, the future sacrifice that would provide a covering for all of us. You see, because in the same way that God clothed Adam and Eve in the skin of an animal sacrifice, you and I find salvation by being clothed in Christ. Galatians, again, says this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27, it says, For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. God doesn't just clothe them in Genesis 3, but in the the death and resurrection of Christ, we also can be clothed and we no longer have to trust in our own inadequate pursuit of trying to justify ourselves, trying to do enough good deeds, trying to please everybody. We are covered by the blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus came to the earth and he took on sin because we were broken and lost, because he loved us, because he created us for relationship. He takes our sin upon himself and he dies on the cross and sheds his blood as an atoning sacrifice or as a substitute. But he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the dead and in doing so proves he has a power over death. He extends to us by his grace resurrection life. And we, you and I, can be clothed. So not only do Adam and Eve put their hope in the promise of God for the future, but they also understand that he will provide for them. They have a confident expectation. They trust what God has said, which is the way in which salvation comes. Salvation comes through faith in what God has promised. And in this case, when he covers them, they recognize that he continues to provide. Not only the promise of God, but the provision of God. I think about the story even that Scott told last week about the prodigal son. The story that Jesus tells about the wayward son who wandered away, took his inheritance, and when he comes back, what does the father do? Wraps him up in a new cloak, puts a ring on his finger. What we're meant to see there is the ongoing care and affection, the engagement of God. Adam and Eve, even in their brokenness, they see God's promise for the future, and they see God's provision, and that's not all. Lastly, back to Genesis chapter 3, we see that they understand something of God's plan, even in their pain. Look at this in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man, had become like, uh, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now at first glance this feels like a continuation of the punishment, right? It feels like God has given them a curse. He's told them what the consequence of their sin will be and now he boots them out of the garden, right? And that's just more of the the consequence of their bad choices. Well, while I agree that at some level being, uh, being driven from the garden is part of the consequence of their sin, it isn't the primary purpose or the reason. The, the scriptures tell us clearly why God drove them out of the garden. You see, what God says here, and by the way, it's God in sort of a fragment sentence there in 22. He says, they become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, we, we have to drive him out. We have to drive him out. What, well, the implication is this. That man and woman are broken in their relationship with God. Their eyes have been opened. They know the difference between good and evil because for the first time in human history, good and evil is right before them and in them, right? But what God is saying here is that in that state, in that broken state of separation, if they were to take from the tree of life and eat, the implication seems to be that they would become fixed in that position, which God is in no way interested in having happen. He doesn't want them to be separated from him forever, nor does he want us to be separated from him forever. And so driving Adam and Eve out of the garden is actually an act of preservation. It's an act of grace. What God does in driving them from the garden, this banishment preserves them in anticipation of redemption. He says, I don't want them to eat from the tree. Because I don't want them to be stuck like that. Now, here's the interesting thing. That doesn't mean we never get to eat from the tree. The tree will circle back around, right? Now, it's incredibly hard to get to right now, right? They put a cherubim in front of it with a flashing sword. The idea there is that the tree of life is not just hard to get to. It's impossible to get to. The picture is that you and I can't get to the tree of life on our own. There's no sneaky back door. There's no tunnel we can dig. There's no way to get to the tree of life. But if you were to look at Revelation chapter 22, it does talk about the tree of life being present on the shores of the river of life with its 12 kinds of fruit that produce differently in each season and its leaves, which are for the peace of the nations. That tree of life will reemerge and we will have access to it, but there's only one way that you and I can get there. We can't get past the angel or the sword. The only way to taste the tree of life is through Christ. Christ is the only access. That's why Jesus himself in John 14, 6 will say, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God drives us for our good. It's only through Christ. He drives us because that's what's best. And sometimes the most loving thing is also the most difficult or painful. Have you seen that in your life? For Adam and Eve, it could very easily have just felt like God was being mean or that God was being cruel. To kick them out of the garden, that just seems like, you know, punishment on top of punishment. But what we see and what they understood is that God banished them to preserve them for redemption in the long run. What does that mean? It means that God's plan is present even in the midst of the pain. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? God drives them out because his plan is still at work even in the midst of the pain.
You know, the reality is the same for you and I. The reality is that no matter what you're facing, no matter what kind of confusion or conflict, the questions you've got, maybe the sorrow or the anxiety or the grief or the isolation or the anger, whatever it is you're facing, and whether or not that's a consequence of your own failures or the failures of your fellow man, no matter what you're facing, the reality is that these promises are still available and true for us today. That we, like Adam and Eve, can find hope on the other side of brokenness. Hope in the promise of God and the provision of God. And in the plan in the midst of our pain. You see, because even our mistakes and the mistakes of others, when God engages, can be used for redemptive purposes. We can find hope in his promise, provision, and plan because those things refine and transform us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and following says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason we took an extra week to talk about the end of Genesis chapter 3 is that the story doesn't finish with the punishment of God. The story finishes with the ongoing engagement of God. His promise for life in the future his provision of a sacrifice for the sake of doing what mankind can't do on his own and his plan at work even in the midst of pain. I wonder if you'll tolerate for me a second to just be a little bit vulnerable uh, and tell you a little bit about my story. I, um, I don't do this a lot because I kind of don't want to distract. I tell a lot of stupid stories about my kids yelling in Target and whatever, but I don't necessarily always talk about the stuff that's churning in me. But this has been a tricky year, right? And, uh, you guys, I, I knew when I came to this church that uh, it was going to be hard, right? I remember coming in 2016 just to visit, and I thought, what an awesome church, and so many awesome people. They just need a shepherd. They just need somebody to love them and walk with them, and, and then, you know, I got the call, and they said, hey, we want to consider you to be the pastor of this church, and we, we walked down that path, and God made it clear that he was calling my family and I to this church to serve in this place. It was as clear as anything in my life has ever been that he was, that he was calling me here. But you guys, in the last year or so, um, I will say that everything has been ratcheted up. I knew it was going to be hard, but for all of us, things have been ratcheted up. Whether Whether it's the increased tension from the pandemic or racial unrest or social unrest, political unrest, theological frustration, right? There have been all kinds of things in the world this year, the isolation, the, the loss of 600,000 and more lives, the, the ongoing sickness of people who are afflicted. Like we've gone through a crazy year and I will say that in the midst of a very difficult year, um, for, me, for me it's absolutely been the hardest year of my life. Certainly the, the, the worst year of ministry I've ever had. In this season I've been criticized on every side. <laughs> I get criticized if I don't say enough political and I get criticized if I say too much. I get criticized if I talk about racism or if I don't talk about it. I get criticized no matter what. I get an email from everybody on every end of the spectrum and not just me, but our staff has just been pummeled. And I knew coming in that 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 would be the challenge, but I never expected to be facing that. Not only have I faced uh, ongoing 
criticism, but you guys maybe know my mom passed away last year in August, and my grandmother passed away in this new year. Our family dog died shortly after that. It's been hit by a lot of different things. Criticism, family deaths. I've had to face the, the budget cuts of this year, which has been really hard. We kind of saw it coming, but we didn't expect that we would end up having to change up our staff. We've had staff reductions. I feel like it's been impossible in this season to like hit the target on ministry because on Tuesday you think, oh, we're going to be able to be on the parking garage. And then on Thursday you find out, no, we can't be on the park. We got to just do it on video and we can wear masks or we can't wear a mask or we can be inside or outside or this room or that room. And no matter what, there's been like a shifting target and everybody's frustrated about that. And then on top of all of that, some of you know, That in the midst of disagreement with my friend and trusted advisor, one of the guys on our elder board, we ended up coming to an impasse. And a guy who'd been my friend from the day I came here walked away. It has been a year of discouragement. I have felt discouraged and hurt and lonely and anxious and confused and questioning. I felt it and I feel it's a little bit of a roller coaster. But I, I will tell you that in the midst of that grief... In the midst of that pain and confusion, in the midst of all of that, I have found these three things to be continually true for me as well. I am finding hope. And I'm sharing this story with you because I think maybe you've been in some of those same places. I have found hope in these same things. The promise of God, for instance. I've been reminded again and again over the course of the year in those moments where I just kind of want to curl up in a ball and get under a table. I've been reminded of my sonship of my freedom in Christ, that I am his son, I am his child, that the most important thing about me is that I am loved by God. I have been reminded again and again of my calling on those nights where I go home and I'm sitting on the couch with my wife and I'm like, I don't know if I can still do this. I don't know if I can keep going. It it hurts too much. My wife goes, we were called. Remember, we were called. You remember. Remember the path we walked. God called us to this church. The calling is secure. Don't quit. Don't give up. I have remembered the promise of God, not only to me, I've remembered the promise of God to us in establishing the mission statement, right? This idea that we, all of us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, should be a loving community, united in sacrifice and living like Christ for the glory of God. That he established these vision pillars for us to make a difference in our city, to make a difference in the world. That we would be a people of radiant peace rooted in confident expectation, A people of revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. Prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith. An unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. None of that has changed. And I have had to remind myself and come back again and again to the reality that God's promises are true. That God's promises are true. That my calling is secure. Not only have I I found hope in the promise of God in this season but I've also seen his provision. I've found hope in his provision. Some of you have probably wondered why I haven't talked about all this drama before. And in some ways, part of that is, I I don't want this ever to be about me. I want it to be about what God is doing, right? I want it to be what's in the text. Fortunately today, this text speaks to things that God has taught me over this year. But the reality is, I don't feel drawn or driven to defend myself in the accusations of other people, in the, in the gossip and the rumors and whatever. I love what it says about Jesus, that he did not defend himself, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I have entrusted myself to Christ. I'm letting him put the fires out. But I have seen his provision in such powerful ways. God has revealed himself to me personally in fresh ways this year, through scripture, through worship, through times of silence and community. 
I've seen our church, I've seen God provide his provision in the work of our church in an incredibly difficult ministry year. We have done amazing things together for our neighbors and for the lost and for those other churches that have no place else to go. God has rallied and shown himself strong in the midst of a difficult time. I've seen his provision in the work that our church has done, revealing Christ. I've seen God's provision in our elders who have responded to unprecedented departures and remained united. Remained. They they were united and they are united. Remained united. They've remained united and and prayerful, right? They've remained humble and supportive to our church and our staff. I've seen God's provision in the way in which my family has grown closer together. We couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything, and God has united us in a beautiful and deep way. I found new camaraderie this year with other pastors, both local pastors, countywide pastors, nationwide pastors, even leadership in in our association, the Evangelical Free Church of America. I've been so encouraged and supported by other leaders that are walking through some of this same stuff and being reminded that God is faithful, not only here, but in other places. I've seen his provision in that camaraderie. I've seen his provision in personal clarity insight and guidance in meeting regularly with a therapist. I started seeing a therapist this year because you guys, I was like, there's a point where I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping. And I called Christopher, who's our care pastor. And I was like, I I need to get some help or something. And so I went to see this Christian therapist. And then the first time I met with him, I was like, I just got to tell you, I'm not sure I believe in this. Right. And he goes, he goes, that's okay. Let's just chat and we'll see where it goes. That has been a gift of God to be able to sit with a godly Christian man every week and just kind of open up my heart and go, this is where I hurt. And this is where I'm lonely, and this is where I'm afraid, and this is where I feel like a failure, and this is where I've been beat up 20 ways from Sunday to sit with someone who can help me understand how I'm feeling and what I'm feeling, how how to move past that. I've seen God's provision in our staff that has persevered in the midst of similar hardship, in the midst of isolation, and in the midst of near constant criticism. This isn't people just sending me mean emails or me mean letters or saying mean things to me. Our whole staff has been punched again and again, and yet God has provided in their faithfulness and their dedication, their commitment. It's been a beautiful thing to behold. I I have also seen God's provision in the numerous members of this body who have prayed for me, encouraged me, and blessed me at just the right time. And as I look out in this place, some of you are here and you know, right? That like you didn't know why you needed to talk to me on that particular day, or you didn't know what your note would mean But God used you to provide for me with just a little bit of kindness. I have seen God's provision. Adam and Eve believed in the promise of God. So do I. Adam and Eve saw the provision of God. So have I. And Adam and Eve understood the plan of God even in the midst of pain. I've reflected on this a lot. I've been thinking about all the things I've learned in the midst of this incredibly difficult year. I'll give you just a couple. This isn't an exhaustive list, but here's just a couple things God's teaching me. I've realized that I'm not as impervious to unkindness as I thought, right? When I came in here, I I knew that there was some bitterness and some frustration and some infighting or whatever, and I thought, no problem, like, it's going to be easy. It'll be great. I can take it. Like, I'm thick-skinned. It'll be good. I I have learned that isn't true. I'm not as impervious as I thought. I've learned that I'm deeply affected by the, uh, the opinions of others, And I need to be more deeply defined by God alone. I preach that a lot. You guys have probably heard me say that, that it is God who defines us, not other people. But in this season, man, all I can hear are other people's definitions of who I am and what I'm doing. And so I've been clinging to God to hear what he says about me, that I'm his son, that I am beloved, that I'm called, that I'm gifted, those things. 
So I've realized that I'm deeply affected more than I should by others' opinions. I will admit to you that I, that I was overconfident and I, I thought I could handle this disagreement with the elders myself, right? And as I look back on it, I, I wish that I, had, that I had reached out to ask for help sooner, that I had waved the flag to the other elders who have been united and supportive and just said, I'm in over my head here. I'm an, <laughs> I, I thought I knew what I was doing and I'm, and I'm lost. I need help. I waited too long to do that. I've learned over the course of this year to call out for help sooner. I've learned that I hold on to hurtful comments and criticism, but I rapidly forget encouragement. I've learned that I have to be a better listener to the right voices and make adjustments sooner. I've learned that I have to trust the leading of the Holy Spirit and take bold action. I've learned that I have to find the balance between meekness and the boldness of Christ. It's very important to me to have the gentle and lowly spirit of Christ, but sometimes there's also a need for leadership. And I've dropped the ball on that in certain places. I've learned that no matter how much I want reconciliation, I can't make it happen on my own. I'm trying, but I can't do it by myself. I've recognized that in our church, the pockets of deep-rooted bitterness and critical spirit, the lack of trust that's been here for decades, you guys, I'm not going to be able to fix it by myself. And I think I naively thought when I came in, like, oh yeah, I got this. I've recognized that the the unity of our church is incredibly vulnerable to persistent gossip and rumors, and I'm not going to be able to f- fix it by myself. I'm learning to not lose heart or nerve, but to seek the tempered resilience that only comes through the fire. To not lose my heart or my nerve, but to seek resilience that comes through the fire. All of these things are part of God's plan for me in the pain of this season. Does that make sense? Has it hurt? Has it been hard? Yeah. Is he transforming me into a different guy? Yeah. Different leader? Yeah. Am I seeing my neighbors differently? Am I seeing my family different? All of that. I have seen in this year the same things that Adam and Eve saw. The promise of God, right? The provision of God and the plan of God even in the midst of pain. It's important for you to know a couple things. It's important for you to know that I was called to this place. I love this church. And not only do I love this church, I love you. Like, I mean you, individually. Uh, I've got relationships with some of you. I I don't just love the church, I do. But I love you, and I'm with you. It's important for you to know that our mission and vision are more vital in 2021 than they were when we established them. I really believe that. Those vision pillars, that mission statement, we established those things long before COVID and those things are more necessary and essential today in our neighborhood than they've ever been. God saw that coming. It's part of his plan in the pain. I want you to know I'm not gonna quit. (laughs) I'm not gonna run away. And... I'm I'm not going to abandon my calling in this place. He called me here, and he knew this year would happen when he called me. He knew it would be hard, and he called me here still, and I trust his power, and I trust his promise, his plan. I'm not going anywhere. And you and I together, what we will see is that the things I can't do by myself— God can do through divine intervention and supernatural healing. The strongholds in our church, the division, the gossip, I can't fix it. But God can fix it 
because he's got all the power and he's with us always and he's good. I'm not leaving and God will heal us. I am here with you and for you for the sake of the glory of God and the good of this city which God wants to transform through us. Amen. So, when we look at the end of Genesis 3.20, we scheduled to teach this, (laughs) you know, a year and a half ago. God knew that 20 through 24, where we look at God's promise and, and his provision and his plan, that that would be incredibly necessary for me to reflect upon and to see not only that they got it, but that I get it. And the hope is that for each and every one of you, no matter what kind of confusion, no matter what kind of frustration, no matter what kind of anxiety, no no matter what kind of anger or, or questions you've got, that these promises of God are as true for us today as they have ever been. Cling to them. Cling to Christ. He will heal us. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would take that you would take your promise and your, your plan, your provision, that you would put them before our eyes. That we would admit and recognize the places where we failed, the places where we've made mistakes, the places where we've tried to do it in our own strength. Not just me, but all of us, God, and that you would heal our church. We, we cry out for divine intervention and supernatural heal, healing for the places in which we are broken. Will you draw us together Will you make us a light, a loving community empowered by your spirit, united in sacrifice, living like Christ for the glory of God and radiant peace and revolutionary kindness and prophetic engagement and unforced appeal, all of these things. Will you make us that? God, we're trusting in you. We trust in your plan, even in the midst of the pain. We pray, God, that you would stir in us a hope, the hope of Eve who saw a redeemer coming and whose very name was rooted in our hope for the life that only you give. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I'll take as many as you got.